welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by Anderson Hauser which they are the leading supplier of measurement instrumentation with a full offering of process solutions for flow, level, pressure, analytics, temperature, recording, and digital communications, and much more. Their excellence lies within their localized USA manufacturing and expansive representative network for product and application expertise in your local area. Learn more about Anderson Hauser at us.andres.com. The link will be in the show notes. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm here with Eduardo Alvarez, software engineering manager at Quantico and co-founder at Energy Peer. Eduardo, how's everything in your world today, man? Dude, it's great, man. You know, well, happy Friday, you know, getting ready for the weekend. But as you know, the grind continues, right? Right. <laughs> so are you the type of person that lives for the weekends or do you just enjoy every single day? No, man. I mean, actually, it's weird. Like Sundays are such a weird day for me that, I mean, only really like Saturday is the day that like I really dedicate a little bit more to family and stuff like that. But like, okay. even like Sunday, I'm already just like mentally getting geared for the week. <laughs> so it's like, you know, trying to prep and stuff. And realistically, I mean, my favorite day of the week, and it sounds maybe a little cliche, like in like modern, like grind culture. Right. But like Mondays, right. And that's like kicking off new opportunities for the week and like yes. excited about some things coming up. So yeah. that's like, I always say, thank God for Mondays. So I don't know if you're familiar with ET, the hip hop preacher, but Eric Thomas, he's like an old school motivational speaker. Who's, came from the dirt, I think in Michigan somewheres, but he ended up, you know, growing up, becoming a motivational speaker. You know, I don't know if he's as big now as he was maybe like 10 years ago, but he traveled around speaking to universities. And one of his famous quotes is, if you want to succeed as bad as you want to breathe, that's when you'll be successful. And he goes through this story about, there's a guy who he has a mentor and they go to this beach and he's like, you know, I want to learn from you. And I just, I want to be so successful. And then what does it take? So they go in the water and I may be kind of like, like the story may be a little different, but the idea is that they go to this beach, they go out in the water a little bit. And then the mentor says, keep coming. And the guy's like, how am I going to learn how to be successful if we're out here swimming? He's like, just follow me. And so they get deeper and deeper and deeper until basically the guy's neck is at the water. And so all that's left is the head. And he's like, what are we doing out here? And the guy takes him, he puts him underwater and nearly drowns the guy. And so he comes up, he gets a breath and he puts him back in the water. And then finally, after a few minutes of the guy just suffering, he said, how bad did you want to breathe? He said, it was my life. Like I wanted to breathe so bad, but I couldn't. He said, the minute that you want to be successful, as bad as you want to breathe, at that moment, that's when you'll become successful. And so that was like his kind of, you know, he said that. And of course, like the YouTube video has like, I don't know how many millions of views, but anyway, so, but his whole thing is thank God for Mondays. Because if you live for Fridays and the weekends, you know, only like, you know, a small portion of your life is valuable to you. Whereas like, if you're working, you know, Monday through Friday and you think it's miserable, then the majority of your life is actually really miserable. And it's yeah. pretty sad to think about it actually, you know what I mean? Oh no, with, without a doubt, man. I mean, it's funny, like anecdotally, I didn't always think this way. I mean, especially like in college, like you're always excited for the weekend, right? Cause you know, you're in college, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then, but what happened to me was like, when I started working at Microsoft straight out of school, I remember being in the West Chase off of Westheimer where I was, where their offices were back then. I was getting in the elevator one day and this guy comes in the elevator and in the morning, he's like, 
says so like, thank God it's Monday. And then I looked at him and I was like, I was like, who says that? <laughs> and, then, and he turned around because I was, I was just straight out of college. And he said to me, he says like, because the only reason you should say, thank God it's Friday is if you've already made it. Is that right. if you've already made it, then, you know, for sure, you know, like enjoy your weekends, you know, every day can be a weekend after you've made it. It doesn't matter. Right. That's so true. Yeah. But like he told me, that's right. Cause you know, we're still out here grinding, you know, thank God it's Monday, new opportunities, you know? So I love it. It happened to me. Like, I think it was like my third week of work and I like totally, you know, it's like those little things, those little encounters you have like early in your career that just stay with you. It's right. insane. Like, I don't remember the guy's face. I don't remember the interior of like the elevators, but I remember it just like very clearly, like word for word, he said, wow. Just stuck with it. Yeah. Those Great. moments, like you said, are pivotal moments and they just kind of like shift your thought process in forever, right? Like it's so cool. So before we keep going here, I do want to share something with the audience that none of my other guests have been willing to do before. So this is new and I'm excited. So Eduardo and the team at Energy Peer are giving away a brand new set of Apple AirPods. All you have to do is the three following things. So follow their page on LinkedIn. I've got the link in the show notes. Like and comment on the post of this episode. So what Eduardo and his team are going to do is when this episode launches, they'll share it on their page. And then if you you share the episode, say on, you know, share that post on your LinkedIn page, along with, you know, liking it in a comment, you'll be then entered the drawing automatically. And then, you know, the winner, I think it makes sense. The winner will be announced one week after the post. You have a week to share it and comment and like it. And then who knows if you're the lucky winner, then Eduardo will reach out to you on LinkedIn and get your shipping address and you get yourself a new set of AirPods. I think it's great. I don't know where you came up with the idea, but I love it. <laughs> no, no, no. It's a definitely just want to do something cool for the podcast. I mean, thank you again, Justin, for having us on, you know, obviously like your audience and this whole ecosystem is really cool. So yeah, I just want to give back a little bit and, you know, I appreciate everybody's time for you know, coming in and listening, right? So yeah, no, most definitely, man. So I recall you have a love for baseball, Eduardo. And I recently heard that the lockout has finally ended. How excited are you? Is that something that when you heard that you were super pumped about or what? Oh, man, I have no words. Like, <laughs> <laughs> my wife and I are, are we're big Astros fans. We love going to games. And man, we were just so worried. We we're like, because I mean, I was born in 1994, right? And when they canceled, like, you know, the postseason and some of the season when the CBA wasn't able to be, when they couldn't renew the collective bargaining agreement back then, right? Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, there's no way, man. Like, I mean, it's going to happen again. You know, it's I was so frustrated. And then when I got the news, I was just elated. I mean, very yeah. excited. Get back to some games, man. Absolutely. And to add to that, you recently made a post about pie baseball, and it's something to do with data analytics and baseball. Can you describe what that is? Because I saw your post, but I didn't have enough time to really dive into it. But I think it was really neat. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't know if you are familiar with StatCast. No. StatCast is like, some people talk about it like a baseball, like in terms of like pre and post StatCast. Like it's basically like this incredible amount of analytics that the MLB like puts together in terms of games, right? So what Pi Baseball does, it's not my library. It's not my open source project, but... I ran into it and I thought it was quite cool. I mean, I've obviously been a baseball fan my whole life. And basically what it does is allow you to perform like machine learning and data science by, you know, pulling data from StatCast. So you can, you know, put together, you know, cool data analytics applications, do predictive analysis. And which is going to be crazy nowadays, because I don't know, I actually haven't looked at the new collective bargaining agreement. So I'm not sure if they got rid of the shift, you know, and if they got rid of the shift, that highly impacts how you can use like hitting analytics, because you can't now... They previously, like one of the big things about StatCast and like using data analytics in baseball was that now you could predict where, you know, the likelihood of a player hitting a ball a certain way. 
and then yeah. you could put play you could put the fielders there right right but if they eliminate the shift then that information is you know it's still there but it's not nearly as valid right because you can't accommodate your team to really you know use that information so wow what do you mean by the shift so like the shift in baseball is when you for example, like you move around the position players into a particular location, depending oh. on like the batter. Right. Okay. So one of the things is like the players association was trying to get rid. I can't remember if it was the MLB or the players association was trying to get rid of the shift because it was impacting hitting numbers. Right. Oh, so, so like outfielders weren't able to move relative to the batter. They had to stay in one spot. I have no idea what it's like. Like the only way I can think of it actually working is if, like you predefine as the MLB, like the anchor position of where like a position is defined, like a shortstop is like X amount of feet from second base, X amount of feet from third base, you know, uh-huh. X amount of feet forward and back with respect to a position on the field. And they can only move pre-field like a certain distance. It's very confusing. Right. And I think that it adds like a strange dynamic. So I'm not sure if they kept it or not. They were supposed to re- release the notes from the CBA today. So I haven't had a chance to look at them. To me though, it's kind of like reminds me of football is like you line up a certain way. And I mean, strategically, it makes sense if you're like playing defense in baseball, like I grew up playing baseball and yeah, you would shift. And as a batter, you could then say, well, I know my strength is hitting it to let's say like, you know, deep right field, but if everyone's lined up there or let's say everyone shifts, well, then you have to then kind of change your strategy and try and hit it offset that. And I mean, to me, that's what baseball is about. It's a game of chess, right? And so it's like, you got to kind of fake people out, you know, mess with them a little bit here and there. And then anyway, we could go on about that for a while, but interesting to know. (laughs) I didn't know that was happening. I don't really get to follow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, I mean, it's funny that you brought up that pie baseball thing, because like now with the new collective bargaining, it's actually all comes into like, you know, the era of stat cast impacted baseball very heavily in terms of like being able to predict where people were going to hit. And now if the shift is gone, then what impact does data analytics have in baseball now? I mean, because hmm. that was a huge impact. Yeah. Now it's like, wow, what is left on the bone? And there's still things there, but. You know, gotcha. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, again, this is in as much as we like to talk about the Astros and baseball, we will move on. I like to start off by asking some unique questions and this one, you know, maybe get to scratch your head a little bit, but over the last few years, what core belief have you changed your mind over? And that could be personal business or really anything that comes to mind? Yeah. I mean, well, I think there's a couple different things I think about a uh, career. So like, for example, I think like when I was growing up, I was always, you know, you were always told like, you know, you want to you know, go to school, get a good job, you know, like, and then you have this 10, 20, 30 year career with this big company, you retire, you have a pension, you have a 401k and all those things and you're good. Right. I mean, that's, that was the model, right. The, the mm-hmm. corporate model. So one of the key things I think that have changed in my mind in the past couple of years has been thinking about my career as more of like a vehicle for me to gain the skills I need to do the things I love. Okay. So for example, like I love the opportunities, for example, I've gotten at Microseismic and then now Quantico, right? Right now, you know, being 27, leading a software engineering team is an an immense humbling, you know, experience. and, And I love my team and I thank them for everything they do every day. And they're, they're just great people. But at the end of the day, like that entire experience is giving me, you know, the tools that, you know, and the resources to build out the long-term plan, you know, through, you know, mechanisms like entrepreneurship, or just simply giving back, you know, dedicating time to, you know, community service and things like that. You know, you need to have the right tools in your back pocket and you have to have the right amount of resources to then give back to people and build things. Like, for example, like, I know we'll jump into it later with 
when we talk more about energy peer, right? But like the ability to build energy peer is almost like me having like a direct impact and say into, you know, the future of the industry, right? I can't build energy peer without the education that I received, the opportunities that I received through my education, the time I've spent at Quantico and Microseismic and that giving me, you know, building me up as a person and as well as giving me the resources to start that venture, right? So instead of thinking of like a career as just like, not, you know, like, like signing on the dotted line and saying like, like a mortgage, right? It's like, here, 30 years, let's take it. I'm going to show up nine to five every single day and build a career here, you know, climb the corporate ladder. I've thought about it way differently in the past couple of years. And it's really changed my framing of like what I want to do the rest of my life. Because at the end of the day, life is a long journey, but it's, you know, you only have in terms of a career and the kind of footprint you want to leave, the defining moments of that are tend to be very early on. You can make shifts later, but they tend yeah. to be early on. And I appreciate the opportunities I've received. They're allowing me to build that journey. And I think- wow that framing has really changed things for me, you know, thinking about what a career really is and redefining it. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. So, you know, arguably COVID sort of set the stage for a lot of folks to reevaluate where they were in their careers, whether it was to be their personal lives. Some realized that, you know, they were with a spouse that they couldn't handle living with, but they were together regardless because they were busy working in their own offices, whatever the case may be. But I mean, I think, it is important to acknowledge that a lot of people, I mean, including my wife, like really kind of looked herself in the mirror and was like, what do I really want to do? And some people, you know, such as yourself, took the opportunity to make a leap of faith. I mean, you started your own company, many did, but what would you say for a lot of the younger folks out there who, you know, are maybe a little bit scared or fear that, you know, kind of going outside their comfort zones may be too challenging for someone to do? I mean, obviously, oil prices are high. People are paying people, you know, fairly well to stick around. Retention is tough, but do you have any sort of like, what would you say the biggest word of advice is for someone who is curious and who's younger, who maybe doesn't have as much, you know, liability in front of them, such as like kids or, you know, they're married or have a house or whatever, but yeah. What would you tell those folks who are, who are considering it, but just haven't really kind of gained the courage to do something different or to kind of expand on, on what they're doing. So they don't just have to live that nine to five for the next 30 years. Yeah, no, I get what you're saying. So I think that it ties back to some one of the first conversations I actually had with you, Justin, like when we first met up at, at Calvin Spoke, that local bar that we went to. Yeah. And they're not sponsoring this, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's a neat spot, though, for anyone who's interested. If you drive by, you don't have to wear a vest. I promise you. It's, it's, it's a safe place, but it looks a little sketchy. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a cool place. Once you go inside, it's, a, it's, it's definitely like it. It doesn't look like it from the outside, but it's a pretty cool little neat bar. It is. It's a great place. I love it. <laughs> Yeah. And we were talking and you told me, we were talking about how, you know, when you're young, like, I mean, you can spend quite a few bullets. Like, I mean, you're like, you can totally make a massive mistake and rebuild yourself in a couple of years. You got the energy, you got the time, you don't have the liabilities, like you said, right? Yeah. So that's one thing. I mean, just take the chance because like, you know, one thing that I learned to do about a year and a half ago, I don't remember exactly where I heard it, but it was always like, when I'm afraid to do something, I think about like, what's the worst thing that could happen? And like, yeah. actually say it to yourself. It's like, yes. what's the worst thing that can happen? And then when you think about the absolute worst scenario, it tends to like calm you down. You're just like, oh, it's actually not that bad. <laughs> you know, so that's really fascinating. So Tim Ferriss did a TED talk. I don't know if you're familiar with Tim Ferriss. I am, yes. Yeah, he did a TED talk on fear setting. Instead of goal setting, it's fear setting. You know, it's exactly what you're talking about. And I do this with a lot of folks that work alongside with me or even I say under me. I hate when people say they work under me, but they work with me. And 
you know, sometimes things are happening and they're kind of worried and it's like, okay, what's the worst thing that could happen? Okay. Let's just use an example. Like, oh, I don't know. Like the customer gets mad and okay, well, what's the worst thing that can happen if they get mad? Well, we don't want to get, you know, ran off the job. Okay. What's the worst thing that can happen if we get ran off the job? Well, then we lose a customer. Okay. Well, what's the worst thing about that? Well, we lose revenue. Okay. Well, what's the worst thing about that? Well, our, well, what kind of opportunities present themselves if we lose a customer and you free up all that time? And then, you know, right. you just kind of keep thinking, well, what's the worst thing that can happen if that happens? And ultimately I ask them, is that as bad as like losing your spouse or like waking up one morning, your grandma got hit by a car? Like, no. So like, it's just business. And if a problem can be solved just because, you know, because of money, it's really not that big a problem. Now, of course it's relative, but in that being said, I love your mindset to say, well, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen? And if you really kind of visualize whatever that is, it really gives you perspective. Like, okay, it wouldn't really be that bad. Like, okay, right. I lost five, 10 grand, 20 grand and you're 27. I mean, that 20 grand when the, by the time you're 75 is going to be relevant, but what you will be able to look on is, wow, like I don't have any regrets because I did everything yeah. that I wanted to do. So I mean, I think that's great. And, and I think for the younger folks out there who are listening, you know, maybe you've heard that before. Maybe that's something you do, but if not, then hopefully that, that was something that struck a chord because, you know, even just kind of you hearing about it, it's like kind of reminds me too, is like, yeah, what is the worst thing that can happen? So I want to dive into your sort of your background, your growing up, because that, that's another fascinating story that you were able to share with me. You're originally from Venezuela and talk about a little bit about your, your parents, because you were exposed essentially to the entrepreneurial life right out of the gate. And then your parents, or at least your dad is, is still very much entrepreneurial. So tell us a little bit about that. Cause I think it's really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. So, you know, when I was growing up and, and I talked to my parents about it now and they kind of compare, you know, comparatively, like tell me about how it was growing up and having that entrepreneurial mindset while everybody was going to college and buying a house and doing all these things. Right. You know, they were always busy trying to start the new business or maintain the one that they were currently working on. And people would say, oh, well, you know, come to the movies, come to dinner, or things like that. And they're like, sorry, you know, we got kids and we're building like three businesses at the same time. It's like, <laughs> And that was in Venezuela or when they- That was in Venezuela, moved? yeah. So like, I think we briefly touched on it before, but I mean, like, you know, one of the first things my dad did was there's like these little, like, they're like almost like vegetable, like canned vegetable cans, like tall, almost like the dimensions, like a Pringle can, but they <laughs> yeah. were sealed on both ends. And then they were wrapped with like paper and like designs of like Disney characters and things like that. Yeah. So my dad thought that was like real cool. He took it, he bought a bunch of them, took it, you know, took a bunch of money, like money. He really, at that moment was like, he didn't really have like in terms of like to spend, mm-hmm. took it, took it back to his hometown, sold all of them with that money. They and then invested it in a couple other things. But the main thing they invested in is buying a bunch of bathing suits because in the U S back then, in like the nineties or like, I want to say like nineties, late eighties, like the bathing suits were like not the same style. Like they had much more progressive bathing suits in South America, you know? Okay. And like, they brought them to Miami beach and like sold them on the street, like him and my <sighs> uncle. And that like, is so they, awesome, man. I love, and then, love and that I mean, that, that's, yeah. So like, I've been exposed to that. Like right now they're selling, like thing I mentioned to you, like they're selling vanilla beans imported from Mexico on Amazon and flipping them on. It's like, it's crazy to think. I always tell them, it's like, what's the next thing? Like, you know, like how many things are you guys going to sell? How many things are you guys going to do? And it's just, you know, a very exciting like culture to always to be brought up in that my parents were always on the lookout for opportunities and things like that. And I think for me, it's like kind of instilled that in me as well. It's like, I see a problem. I see like something that's missing and I always look to optimize, look to fix it, look to contribute, look to somehow fill a need. Right. And I think that's something that I'm really grateful for. Yeah. Yeah. So can you elaborate on like, cause when you guys moved to the U S your parents, 
started essentially like a shipping company, like similar to say like a FedEx or UPS, right? Yes. I mean, it was definitely on a much smaller scale. Basically they bought like a small, like mail store, almost like it was like a UPS store, but it was like an independent, it was like in a Walmart Plaza in Sanford, Florida. And it was like in the corner, it was like a failing business at that point. And then like it turned around and like, you know, just like through passion and like dedication, totally built it up. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's essentially what they did. Yeah. And, and it was an opportunity for us to come to the U S because back then the investor visas or the investor green cards, I'm not sure what they're called, you know, like they were much lower than they are today. Now they're like, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, but back then they were wow. much smaller. Yeah. Huh. So what was the biggest lesson learned? Cause you came and I would imagine you spent like probably most of your spare time, if you weren't, you know, going to school there at the shop or, you know, at their company, at the business, probably helping. But you mentioned, you know, going into the, I think it was in the back, you'd play baseball regularly, but I mean, you spent a considerable amount of time there, right? Yeah. Well, I'm always grateful that like I have a younger sibling, my little brother, like, I mean, we're still close, but like back then, I mean, it was just like, you know, like this, just like super tight. And like, I mean, we did everything together and like, we were pretty much each other's best friend up until we you know, found out there are other people in the world and that we can <laughs> hang out with, right? But essentially, I mean, he's still my best friend. And, you know, essentially growing up with him, like playing baseball in the back while my parents were working or, you know, going back in there and actually helping them. There's actually a little picture of like this little TV, like, you know, if I ever find it, I'll send it to you, Justin, so you can see it. Yeah, <laughs> We're like, to. my parents built this like little nook in the back in between like all the boxes, like all the cardboard boxes that, you know, like that they use for shipping. Like there's this little nook, it was about like, maybe like, six feet by like three feet wide, this little like rectangular tiny nook. And they put like a TV in there and it was like literally so close to our face. Like it was like <laughs> cooking our cornea. <laughs> one thing I did is like with that TV one day, we couldn't change the channel and I accidentally ended up deleting like channels. I didn't know you could do this, but I deleted all the channels from the thing, except for like channel 59, which was food network. So like oh, we wow. grew up like basically watching nothing but food like shows like in the back for like, <laughs> For like seven years because I deleted all these, you know, deleted all the channels. And oh no. It's funny because like it, it translated. We think about it now and like we like we're both big massive baseball fans. We grew up playing baseball together and we love to cook <laughs> and we love like that moment in our lives, like all these stupid little decisions like just impacted us so much. Yeah. You know, it's hilarious. Yeah. So are you a cook now? Like do you like to cook and, and prepare food? Now? I love to cook, but like in Venezuela, there's a lot of like refugees in World War II that came to Venezuela from Italy. So the area that I'm from, like my grandmother's entire like neighborhood per se, is like all Italian families. So like my mom mm-hmm. grew up like with all her friends being like Italian immigrants, right? And like that food is so instilled in Venezuela's culture too. It's really cool. And like, we're very passionate about it. I mean, we're not Italian, but that's the stuff I love. I mean, it's my favorite food. Yeah. Good for you. So, <laughs> so can you cook it at home right now? If you were to like, do you have, oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm not going to brag, but I mean, yeah, no, you what, can brag my all mom, you want. No, but whatever my mom's taught me and she's a phenomenal cook. I definitely try to do my best and my wife loves it. So she's definitely, I don't know, my only critic to this point, I don't have kids. So I mean, yeah, when I, I have people over, they like it, but my wife on a daily basis when it's like, you know, like this is the bomb. Yeah. <laughs> well, one day I would love to try it at some point. It's yeah, like, of course, man. Of course. I'm a fat kid at heart. If anyone's ever <laughs> been to lunch with me, they think I'm boring because I normally eat a salad and like put dressing on the side, but I will indulge in some good food from outside the US. So I would love that at some point. But, you know, okay, so you grow up, your parents are running a business, you're very much exposed to hard work, dedication, like you said, making major sacrifices, obviously, you know, not trying to live the lavish lifestyle, but really being a, a true immigrant who's here and who's just trying to chase the American dream, to which then you grow up, go to high school, and you end up at Texas AM 
were you living in Florida, then moved to College Station? Or what did that look like? Yeah. I mean, I essentially just packed it up and moved to Texas to pursue a geoscience degree, you know, just passionate about the earth and the subsurface and decided that's what I wanted to do. And yeah, so just moved over to Texas A&M for Florida. So, I mean, again, we don't have to stay on it too long, but like, did you just throw a, like a dart at a map? Like, because most Texas A&M grads that I know from petroleum engineering or chemical or mechanical are like from Texas. So how did some, you know, a Venezuelan immigrating to Florida choose Texas A&M? Yeah, no, it's a funny story. I mean, my brother, for example, like I always say this, like, you know, like when it's two siblings, I don't know if you're, you have siblings, Justin. I don't you know, actually, you know, so like, I've always been told this, like the first sibling is always the, you know, you, you're the one running through the wall and then the other sibling just comes and walks through that hole. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's funny, like in school, like, I mean, I was always very passionate about like, sports and, you know, my parents were very young parents. My parent, my dad's 50 now I'm 27. So I mean, wow. they had me very young. I was a little bit younger than my dad. Like they were learning, you know, to be, you know, they were learning the ropes. Wow. And my mom was my age when we came to the U S and I was seven. So like wrapping right around that, like by the time when my mom was my age, I was already seven and she was moving to another country Ooh, to start a new business. It's, it's crazy, crazy. Like to think yeah. about it. But yeah. So like essentially like, you know, when we were growing up, my parents, you know, learning the ropes and everything, you know, I was focused on sports. My brother was definitely more focused in school. So my brother, when, when it came time to go to college, right. When my brother was just receiving like from his like sophomore year, a ton of letters from college, there was one that like I thought was mine. <laughs> it was really his and it was the A&M one. Oh, really <laughs> and i saw it and i was like it ended up being my brother i was like, <laughs> I was like dang it but i looked at it and i was just like in love with like the campus the colors like, just, like i was like and i told my parents i was like i want to go there we got in the car for a new student conference went over there i fell in love with it but i still needed to go to school because you know my grades frankly in high school i just wasn't one of the you know i just wasn't one of those people i mean it was but in high school that was like you know, that completely stood out. So in that moment, I decided that I'm going to do whatever it takes to get to Texas A&M and transfer over there. So that's what really took me there. It was like by coincidence, like my little brother received a card from them and I decided that I loved the school and wanted to go there. Yeah. (laughs) Perfect. No, that's cool. And so you go to Texas A&M, you're studying geoscience. And then after that, you get out, you pursue, was it hard to get a job? When did you graduate? I graduated in 2017. So my graduating class, it was quite small at A&M. By the way, this isn't something to brag about. I mean, but I was the only person who got a job out of our entire graduating like geophysics class that year. And it was like, it was actually an unfortunate thing, in my opinion, to see that because like I had a lot of really talented colleagues at that moment that definitely deserved jobs and actually helped one of them get a job as soon as I could, like at MicroSeismic, like yeah. at school. Because I was like, hey, man, like, I mean, you know, everybody talks about the Aggie Network, right? If you've ever heard of that. And it's like this you know, the alumni network supposed to help each other out. I mean, graduating, I was all about that. I was like, let me see who I can help out and get a job. So yeah. So, I mean, but one of the main reasons behind that was that I took kind of a leap and like went to SEG, Society of the Exploration Geophysicist Annual Conference. It was in Houston back in 2017. And I just kind of took a leap of faith and went there with some colleagues. And I waited in line to talk to my ex-boss, Peter Duncan, at the Microseismic booth. And I remember waiting in line for a really long time and I was about to give up and just walk away. Cause I was like, man, this guy's too popular. He's not going to want to talk to me. Right. And then I you know, talked to him and I had been doing a ton of research in the same kind of space associated with what Microseismic did. I mean, he told me, he's like, yeah, here's my card. Just send me your resume. And I was like, at the back of my mind, I was like, this guy's, you know, Peter's like oh, a really nice guy, but I was like, he's trying to let me down easy. Right. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a couple of weeks later, I get an email from their VP of analysis and, 
And he says, like, hey, you still want to work for us? And I said, yeah. <laughs> yeah, nobody else is getting jobs. So yeah, I'll take whatever I can get. And it was honestly like such an extreme blessing. And I ended up going into the field with them for five months as a field geophysicist. Amazing experience getting to live out in the field with all those guys. And it was just a great experience. You know, It was challenging to find a job. I still have friends who haven't found jobs that I graduated with that have left the industry. And I mean, it's a shame because we've lost a lot of good talent through the downturns. But yeah, yeah it was extremely challenging to get a job straight out of school. Yeah. Right. Well, obviously, it's a huge testament to you and your ability to pursue. And yeah, obviously, you stand out amongst many, which is great. You know, so you start off there, you get on with Quantico, and that was in a similar field, right? Like it's all been subsurface stuff, but now you're more on like the software side. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. More on the software side. Yeah. Okay. So at what point did you decide in your career that you wanted to make a pivot and start your own company? Because, I mean, you started it, was it in 2021, right? Yeah, in 2021. And, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's the right timeline. Yes, early 2021. Yeah, That's right. So in your partner there, Reagan, he's also from AM. Is that where you met your business partner? Was that school? Yeah, he is my first friend that I made at AM in my first lab for like mineralogy or something like that. Yeah, he's a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> nice. No, I had the pleasure of meeting him now a few times. You've got a solid team there. And so I think picking, you know, because essentially when you pick someone to be your business partner, you're essentially married to them. <laughs> Talk about like, was there anything, because obviously if you go to school with someone, you get to know their work ethic sort of their habits, their behaviors, things that bug them, things that get them thriving. Has there been sort of any sort of surprises after getting into business with him that not necessarily obviously questioning because you're in it, you know, you know, ride or die kind of thing, but yeah. Is there anything that kind of maybe pleasantly surprised you about your partner that you're like, wow, this really made, this helps really solidify my decision in, in going to business with him? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, at AM, I mean, anybody who went to school with us, I mean, Reagan was probably one of those brilliant people, like in all of the classes that we were in. I mean, brilliant geoscientist. He went on to get his master's from U of H, worked a little bit of time at TGS. Brilliant guy, you know, just like the stars just never aligned in terms of the industry. I mean, just not a lot of opportunities there. So yeah. I mean, when going into business with Reagan, I knew that it wasn't something that was going to fail. I was super comfortable with it because I haven't exposed to two, three years, just like sitting in classes, doing homework with the guy, like knowing his work ethic, knowing how serious about he is about things. So, I mean, there's no regrets and absolutely like, no, like I didn't think about it twice. Like I was like, if I want to go into business with somebody, it's gotta be somebody that I trust, somebody who's going to have my back. And I mean, it's funny enough, like, I mean, Reagan and I only really have a relationship in terms of school, but you know, going into business together, it's definitely blossomed to something very trusting, something very cool. So yeah, definitely. Yeah, we haven't missed a meeting in like, you know, in two years. I mean, nice. we, we always, you know, it's when you see that kind of dedication from both ends, like just a willingness not to let each other down is, is something that has been great for me. And then like a definitely pleasant surprise, which it wasn't a major surprise, but because I always knew Reagan was a quiet guy and I was like, definitely way more talkative. Always been a talkative <laughs> guy. Yeah. But you know, like we compliment each other very well. Like he's highly attention to detail. He's the kind of guy that when somebody's talking, he's like, processing it i'm much more reactive and you know in terms of like you know creativity and throwing things at the wall and like trying to see you know find solutions i'm very like agile and quick about them and reagan is really good at processing them and putting them into context and kind of like taming the wild animal in terms of like like in terms of like where i can get in terms of like you know being creative with ideas and things like that and new solutions so it's a really good fit man i think that we've talked about it before it's like if you have like two wild horses on the team like you know you can sometimes, you know, it's hard to kind of like focus, right? 
But for sure, Reagan really helps in bringing things into focus in, in our meetings and, and generally what we do at Energy Peer. So yeah, yeah, definitely like it was a surprise in terms of like how the dynamic ended up coming together very naturally. But I knew it was going to be successful just from knowing him from school. Yeah, Perfect. No, again, I've had the pleasure of seeing with him. And it's, yeah, it's you're going and it's like he's sitting there. It's like his brain's going on overdrive as he's doing mathematical equations and <laughs> perhaps calculus in his head, strategy. But then when he does say something, it's very impactful. You know yes, what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's fascinating to see it's the dynamic between you two. But let's talk about Energy Peer. I always like to start off. I mean, what is your mission? What is your vision within the company? And then really we can dive into what it is you offer. Yeah. So, I mean, at Energy Peer, our mission, it's very simple, Justin. It's to make sure that the companies have the data, they have the data and access to the services, oil field services that they need in order to, well, energy services in general that they need to produce the you know kilowatt of energy barrel of oil or mega you know a metric ton of gas in the most like environmentally and ethically you know responsible way possible you know like just making sure you stay true to those principles in terms of producing energy with the consumer and you know the resources in mind right so yeah, yeah okay so and then what about the vision i mean where do you see this ultimately heading in the future I mean, we essentially want to become like the focal point and data point of like procurement in the oil and gas industry, right? I mean, and energy as a whole, right? So oil and energy. One of the big narratives that we have is we want companies to be able to make decisions in terms of their KPIs and their environmental goals, their safety goals, their economics, their finance goals, as opposed to going off of strictly off either relationships or impulses or feelings or or just being stuck in in a pickle and not knowing where to go, like... We want to give companies the data that they need to make these educated decisions about procurement and what, you know, what services to build into their supply chain, right? So we definitely see, you know, the narrative that we want to see in the future is that, you know, a company makes a decision from a procurement, not because they're, you know, they don't pick and no offense to anybody who's, you know, at any big service company like Halliburton or Slumberjay, but, you know, people don't just pick the big companies because it gives them job security. They pick the companies that they do because they fit their culture, they fit their environmental goals, they fit their financial goals, safety. And at the same time, they've been validated by hundreds of other people who have come before them so that they can not waste anybody's time, get quicker to procurement, not waste so much time on proof of concept, you know, like saving money all around and resources, just getting down to, I mean, it just comes down to this, doesn't like the most ethically and environmentally sourced barrel of oil or just megawatt electricity possible. Like that's what we're going after. Right. Wow. I mean, no, that's, yeah. that's fascinating. And I think a lot of folks have kind of dabbled in this space, but describe a little bit more sort of in detail, the product offering and why you believe this goes so much well beyond, you know, kind of basic e-commerce marketplace, which you've already described, but, you know, walk through an example of how service companies can essentially get on the platform and what kind of value it is for them getting into that space. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Okay, so what we call phase one of Energy Peer internally, okay, is basically launching our peer to peer energy services marketplace. Okay, so essentially, I hate to say it this way, but essentially it's like a Yelp or Angie's List or, you know, like for energy services, right? But that's really not enough. You can't just like take another business model and say, oh, I'm going to just apply it here and it's going to work, right? It has to be very tailored to the industry that it's in. It has to be very, and, and the experience has to go a little bit beyond that for it to be truly unique and truly bring value. So for our users, what we see is a purely ecosystem-driven environment, whereas if you look at some other maybe incumbents in the space, 
you know, you have a lot of paywalls involved or, you know, you have a lot of silos in terms of the data. The approach that we want to take is something that's very nearly open source in the sense of like being having access to information in the environment. So for example, you know, we're not going to charge operators to come in and get access to these services or see the reviews or get information that's been qualified on platform. Something that's going to be open to them. On the other end, you know, for oil field services, what we're creating is the opportunity for you guys to build virtual storefronts and listings of your services and then receive feedback from the ecosystem about the quality of your services and historically how well you've done so that the snake oil you know, falls out of the conversation and only the quality services stand out. So I think that's something that's a very challenging problem. We're working with a lot of users right now to make sure that we create a very comfortable experience and very, you know, that respects you know, people's privacy and companies' privacy and just in general is able to actually fit in into the oil and gas like culture as well in terms of like, how do you tell somebody they did a good or bad job without it making you look bad <laughs> or making, right. you know, or like it having fallout for you later down the line. And we've come up with a very elegant way to do that. And with our early access partners today, which, you know, if you're an oil field service company or an energy service company in general and renewables, we're inviting you guys to join our early access program. And then that's going to come with a lot of benefits in terms of you know, hands-on support in terms of building your virtual storefronts, but at the same time, have a large stay in the growth of the ecosystem. Because like I said, this is something that's very much ecosystem driven so that in order to avoid any kind of corruption, subjectivity, or, you know, playing favorites with any particular company, it's meant to be very holistic in that sense. So yeah. Yeah. No. And and I think, you know, and we've had this conversation before, but a, a lot of transactions are heavily based on relationships, you know, within the oil and gas space. And so I think it's important to, you know, be able to, when folks are talking to you is what's your, I guess, response to people say, oh, well, it's so relationship driven. And I don't know how you're going to get around that. Cause I think that's an honest question that it is. it's something that you need to be able to work around and sort of overcome in order for people to gain confidence. So what is your typical response when someone asks that? Yeah. In our ecosystem, we've run a couple of surveys. We've also spot, spoken to a lot of service partners and just like people in my network and our advisor network as well. Like what we see is, is a fundamental shift. Like, I'll give you guys an example. You have no idea how much, like, for example, you know, at other people's companies, my colleagues' companies, or even my own companies, we've struggled in the past couple of years to get, you know, business development people and salespeople. They're a dying breed in the traditional sense of like people coming on with this massive Rolodex. And yeah. then, you know, you being able to say, okay, we'll sell our product to those people. Why is that falling away? It's falling away because first of all, this new generation that's coming in, I mean, I don't want to just point out millennials, but you know, Gen Z and after, you know, we don't have as many meaningful in-person experiences as, you know, the previous generations did. We didn't spend, and most people are never going to spend months on end on a rig, you know, with, for example, like, you know, the, the concept of cyber rigs coming up and like auto drillers, right? Yeah, I mean, like you're not going to have like company men and a ton of people, just guys chilling out, barbecuing next to a rig or something like that. Same thing with completions, automated completions, same things, even with seismic surveys, using drones to do seismic surveys instead of people out there, you know, stomping geophones, like all these meaningful experiences that people just got the opportunity to build these like strong relationships with that later turned on into those Rolodexes are going to start to fall away. Okay. They're not going to be available to companies to leverage in terms of Rolodexes for selling their services. So that's one thing that I'd say is like that model of relationship-driven business development 
down the road, it's falling apart. If you go to a conference nowadays, we're talking about like 20, 30% attendance compared to 10 years ago. You know, yeah. it's mind blowing. You know, you just don't see the numbers turn out. And yes, of course, like before you could say, oh, but you'll have your colleagues and you'll interact with them at work. Not anymore. People are working from home. You yeah. know, like even you, how many companies have brought in like probably 10 to 15% of their current workforce just during like post COVID, you know? And everybody has been, you know, remote work. What kind of relationships are you building that are going to be meaningful and lasting in order for you to sell back to those people in the future? So that's my response is just like a quantum shift in the way that relationships are built in the energy industry, despite the fact that we're a little bit behind. This is how things have happened actually in other industries that are a little more progressive and faster. Why are there marketplaces in e-commerce marketplaces for almost every other industry? It's because like, a lot of those other industries don't leverage, never had early career opportunities to develop relationships like we did in oil and gas in the past 30 years, right? But now that's essentially, it's a moot point. That's not going to be the case anymore. So are we building something that today is still, that the market might not be 100% ready for? You know, that might be the case. But believe me, the time is coming when, and it's coming soon because I'm already seeing it, is you're not going to be able to just simply access a Rolodex to make sales. You're going to need to have beyond relationship-driven validation of services. And that comes from data. That's where we want to be. We want to have the data to help you make decisions. The same way that when you jump on Amazon, you don't call your mom to ask her what blender to buy. You look at which one has the most reviews, which one fits your budget, and which one you know has you know is the best fit for your lifestyle. You know, yeah. That's essentially what we're going after. Yeah. No, and you you hit so many huge points. And even though, I mean, I've been in sales now since end of 2012, beginning of 2013. And even the way that I develop business and sell things is much different. And while I do have, I would say, a network that reaches pretty wide, people love doing business with people they trust and can identify with and like to be around. But with the way the market is and the way companies have been under a microscope to generate profits, even though you trust someone and you want to do business with them, at the end of the day, people are making data-driven decisions. And I think it's, I think while before you could sell based off relationships, I think now, I think it's a, a lot more of a combination of relationships plus value add, plus fit for purpose plus everything. So you, you kind of have to have the full package. And then, and arguably like there's a lot of folks you know, that like back in the day, you'd go out and you do this and sporting events and rodeo and, you know, the bars and you're making deals and networking and this and that. But I mean, depending where you are, people want to spend time with their families. People want to, you know, have lives outside of, you know, going out to the bars and and striking deals. And while that still happens, I think in the oil field service space, at least from what I've seen, it's like, yeah, Justin, we like you. However, we need data to support decisions. And can you send us case studies? Can you send us lab data? And so what like the company that I work for, what we've put a lot of effort into over the years is capturing and quantifying the value that we bring and tying it to the relationships. Because it's not like no one within our organization, I would say there's very few people and some can still do it, but there's very few now that are selling and the customers aren't like constantly trying to pull like KPIs and monitoring numbers and asking like, yeah, you, you know, we trust you and you're doing a good job. 
we like that you come by the office once a week and, you know, bring lunch or, you know, take us out and do this and that. But like the numbers don't lie. And if they're not meeting their criteria, their KPIs, like their CEO and the rest of them, they're not going to care what kind of relationships you have. If it's not impacting their bottom line positively by using that service, there's going to be a major shift. And I think it's only going to get more strict and more strict. And especially with what we report, you know, you talked about environment, you know, let's just, you know, the ESG front companies are now having to track a lot more data. And so that's going to come into play, which I think you've even alluded to that within energy peer, your goal is to tie ESG and, and sort of and carbon and that type of data into the system. So I, that leads me to my next question is, how are you able to sort of bridge that and apply the environmental constraints and then the environmental sort of ambition that a lot of these companies have? Yeah, that's a good question, Justin. So we've actually done a lot of research and we have a pretty good framework in place in terms of, so my background is software, but specifically data science and machine learning, right? So one of the things that we're going to be really focused on is employing some of those technologies in order to build, you know, mine the data, wrangle that data and present it to users in a very elegant way so that they can make these decisions. So coming from how we're going to go about actually calculating this. So for example, we're building an internal oil field service and energy service specific CO2 emissions calculator. So to help companies start to quantify on the service side, you know, what kind of impact are they having with their services? I have not seen the first website that actually shows the number of emissions like across all their services that they are contributing. You know, like I've not seen that even at the large scale. I've seen it on a service here and there. You say like, oh, use this and you'll limit this amount of CO2 emissions. I've seen it. But where it's like one of the storefront things that people are seeing about a, a company or service, it's still not the case where it's quantitative. It's just very general. It's like, oh, you know, use us, we keep ESG in mind. But where are the numbers? You know, where are the facts? If I put together this supply chain from A to B, if I pick these five different services, what does that mean in terms of emissions? What does that mean in terms of cost? How much dollar per CO2 emitted am I spending? You know, that's a massive metric. Like, how are you voting with your dollars in terms of how you know environmentally impactful your operations are? That's a good metric. So you take the amount of money spent divided by the CO2 emissions and you say, okay, that's how much I'm for every dollar I'm spending, I'm contributing, you know, I'm basically spending money to put more CO2 into that. It's a crazy thing to think about because I don't think like 10 years ago we would have thought that being like an important metric, but it is today because it's direct impact of like how investors are contributing to emissions. You get what I'm saying there? Yeah. Like, like the, the, your, how is your capital leading to emissions? If you can limit the amount of CO2 you know, generated per dollar, it's a massive impact and direct reflection of like how important it is to your, how important it is to your investors and those VCs or whoever they may be in terms of like how their money is being spent for ESG purposes and things like that. So those are the kind of metric, like when that's one of the key metrics we want to look at as well and help users make a decision based on So. Yeah. And I think that comes into sustainability, like just on the reporting side too, right? Like, again, I'm sure there's people arguing saying, oh, well, you know, the kind of the ESG focus now is, you know, we haven't heard about it in the headlines recently. Obviously we're, you know, all the noise from all the geopolitical issues happening, but, you know, I think just regardless in time, those things are going to be, it's going to come back. I don't think it's going anywhere, but yeah, if you can help facilitate reporting and, and help make people decisions, even on that front, while they may not make decisions strictly on that, but I think it'll be a collective sort of a basket of like, let's grade everybody or let's look at, you know, that may not be the only deciding factor, but I think it's something that contributes. And in the way a lot of these operators, you know, especially on the larger front bid the work, 
is they score you based off your technical abilities, your commercial abilities. And arguably, I think in the, you know, not very near in the near future, they're going to grade you on your ESG metrics or like, you know, how much, you know, what your CO2 footprint is and what kind of reporting that you have that they can then put into their systems to add to their ESG reporting. So, yeah, I, I mean, again, and if that's, you know, energy's or if energy peers willing to take that on, I mean, that's a huge beast, but you know, just hearing you talk and, and knowing you and, and Reagan, I think you guys have the energy and, and initiative and discipline to, you know, figure it out because I don't think anyone has yet. And if you can be a part of that solution, I think that's huge and something that is going to be in extreme high demand, you know, yeah. hopefully once the, all this, <laughs> the noise goes away with, with people scrambling like a chicken with their head cut off with oil prices being the way they are, but either way, it, it is something that's here and it's here to stay. So it's, I think you guys sort of having that foresight, knowing that that's an extreme level of importance to consider and discuss, you know, with your guys' plans is super remarkable. So sort of one last question here is what would you say right now is your biggest limiter? Like if you could ask the audience for help as a startup, like what would that look like for you right now? Oh man. I mean, obviously like for us, it's, we're building this for you guys. We're actually, this comes from, like I mentioned earlier, we're, it comes from a very holistic point of like holistic, like an unsincere and honest place, which is, I think there's a lot of fabulous talent in this industry. I think a lot of it is overlooked and just because you don't have the right relationship shouldn't mean that you don't have the opportunity to impact the bottom line of how energy is produced in the world, you know? So Definitely, I mean, jump on the platform, be there for us in terms of like, if you're an energy service company, it's almost like a why not kind of concept. Okay. Like if you create a service storefront in our early access program, we're going to give you free credits to start out with. We have a completely free tier for you guys to start out with as well. If you decide to then transfer into that later on. So it's actually comes at no cost. You only ever, it only ever incurs a cost if we generate value for you. Okay. So that's a major component there. It's like the why not reason of like, let me just spend 20 minutes, fill out a couple of forms, build out my, st- my virtual storefront, let it sit there. Nobody has to look after it. Whenever people want to pursue work with you through all of our mechanisms, we'll reach out to you and we'll just generate work for you guys. We want to make sure that in, when times are good and times are bad, when no matter what's happening, you know, the best services are always standing out. And are, you know, we're always making sure that the great talent in this industry is put, be able to put food on the table, you know? Mm-hmm. And at the same time that, you know, like I mentioned earlier, we're generating the most, you know, ethically, you know, environmentally and just like, you know, economically viable, you know, energy possible in this industry. So, you know, join the early access program, guys. There's nothing, there's no risk to you guys. And in terms of funding, we're very soon going to start looking into funding a pre-seed and you guys can reach out to Justin, reach out to me or reach out to Reagan Robinson. If you guys can follow him, <laughs> if you guys see him in our LinkedIn page anywhere. <laughs> you guys can reach out to him and get more information on that. But definitely we're going to, if you are, you know, at a VC or, or looking for an interesting and exciting company, energetic company to invest in energy tech and specifically on the business development side, which is something that isn't necessarily the ones that you know everybody thinks about immediately. I would definitely encourage you to bet on these jockeys, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, that's like I told Eduardo. And for the folks out there, I, I am you know proud to say that I am helping advise Eduardo and the team over at Energy Peer. As much as I didn't think I had any spare time, I'm certainly making some for these guys because I do believe that they have something special. And while I think the horse is, is on its way to the finish line and coming first place, I'm betting on the jockeys. And again, you know, there's some fascinating folks, especially the, the younger generation coming up and really, you know, I hate to use the word disrupting the industry because it's such a buzzword, but really 
allowing the industry to evolve and to catch up and surpass and hopefully attract people from, you know, all walks of energy to see the kind of evolution that we can provide and just the type of technology that we can provide in this space. Because, you know, for a long time, it's been like oil and gas is so advanced, but in so many ways we're so archaic and it's folks like Eduardo and Reagan that are helping break that barrier. And I couldn't be more excited. So before we close out, I do want to lighten it up. And I want to ask you one last question here, Eduardo. I mean, you're busy. You've got your, you know, your full-time job, you've got your (laughs) full-time business you're running, but do you have any sort of habits or routines that help contribute to your success, whether that's something in the morning that you do or at night or just anything that you'd use to unplug and kind of recharge? Does anything come to mind that you do on a regular basis? For me, the biggest thing 100% is, and it might sound a little bit cheesy, but like, you know, having dinner, my wife is a waitress, right? So she comes out of work pretty late, working doubles, you know, working double shifts and stuff, trying to make things, making things work and everything. And like, you know, coming home pretty exhausted and everything. And we're both working like 24 seven, just like sitting down, having dinner with her and just like having, you know, catching up on our days is like the most energizing thing I do. You know, it's like just making sure like, regardless of what happens throughout the day, I have that one person in my corner that like, I can always depend on that, you know, that, right. Yeah. That's, that for me is like, it really injects like, you know, just like an immense amount of like optimism and like clarity into my mind, despite of like whatever kind of turmoil might be going on up there. Right. You know, (laughs) (laughs) millions of things on the to-do list, you know, you can't, but, you know, sitting down, having some tacos, whatever it may be that night, you know, and just chit chat. And it's like, it's the best. And that's what keeps me going for sure. So, yeah. Oh, I love that, man. So what is the best place for folks to reach out to you? Where are you most active? Oh, man, LinkedIn, 100%. I'm very much a LinkedIn fiend. If you guys already follow me or know me, you guys know that I love to post. I love to be active. But if you guys want to reach out to me directly through my email, it's going to be E Alvarez, my last name, A-L-V-A-R-E-Z at energypeer.us. If you guys want to shoot me an email there, have any questions, any comments, anything really, I mean, just reach out and we'll chat. But for sure, LinkedIn, number one place, that'd be the second. Perfect. And, and for the folks out there, if as a startup company, it's always important to get good feedback. So whether or not you are deciding to reach out and to possibly you know get on board, if you have any thoughts or if you want to say, hey, you know, Eduardo, you better consider this. You know, feedback for them is great or any one of us really for that matter. So if you have any thoughts or, you know, whether you think you have a good idea or something that should be considered, reach out. I mean, I think as an ecosystem, it's important that we all get together and help each other out. So with that being said, everyone, thank you so much for the support. And always remember when the density is up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.